As we behold the world around us, it is easy to perceive the hand of a creator who ordered all things perfectly. Nothing in this universe happened by chance because the one behind it all is a God of order and organization. He has revealed to us that angels, who live in the realms of the heavens above, work harmoniously, and the more closely we imitate their harmony and order, the more successful will be the efforts of these heavenly agents in our behalf. If we see no necessity for harmonious action and are disorderly, undisciplined, and disorganized in our work, angels, who are thoroughly organized and move in perfect order, cannot work for us successfully. They would turn away in grief, for they are not authorized to bless confusion, distraction, and disorder. God's people who have embraced the truth in its fullness find themselves in the same position as did the early Adventists in the 1850s. They share the same faith but need to come together in order to work successfully in the Lord's vineyard. Indeed, it has become evident that without some form of organization, we'll remain but independent atoms, creating confusion and preventing the work from being carried forward successfully. The Lord's army must yet again be organized upon the true foundation, following the blueprint that Christ himself has instituted. Organized to finish the work. Dare to be a Daniel, a legally organized church. What we're going to do in this message is look at the relationship between God's people, his church, and the state. We're then going to look at the two primary functions that we find within the church. Next, we're going to go through our own history. And when I say our own history, I'm referring to the history of the development of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Then we're going to look at what a legally organized church looks like and finish with meeting some of the objections that we meet with respect to legal organization. But before we go any further, I would like to invite you to kneel where possible so we can ask the presence of the Lord to be here with us and guide our minds as we look into this subject. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that we can still come and we can still worship you and study together. Father, we know that difficult times are ahead of us. We know that we have a work to finish. Lord, please give us grace from above. I pray and ask that you be with us specifically now as we enter into this subject. I pray that your angels that excel in strength will be here with us, that our minds will be open, that our minds will be guided by the Holy Spirit. I pray that everything I share is not my own thoughts, but that I'm going to share what the Bible says and what your thoughts are, so that we can ensure that we all walk together on the platform of truth, which is thy word. I pray, Father, that you will continue to guide your people so that we can finish the work and finally go home. We surrender and leave ourselves into your hands and pray and ask all of this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So what is it that we find in the Bible with respect to the relationship between Christians and the state? What has God told us that we should do when it comes to the powers of this world? Please open and come with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And there the main focus will be uh, verse 13 and 17. Now in this chapter, just earlier before uh, these verses, Peter is giving uh, an explanation of what God's people should be. They should be built up a spiritual house. Each and every one of us is to be a spiritual stone. And I don't know if you've watched how Masons lay bricks on top of each other. But everything comes together nicely, right? Well, you know what? In the time of Peter, there was no such thing as bricks. Or there wasn't bricks fashioned and formed perfectly as we have them manufactured today. So when they would bring different stones, sometimes these stones would be what? In completely different shapes and forms. And that, that's what we are, brothers and sisters. We are, nevertheless, though, to be built into a spiritual house. Although we have different experiences, perhaps we might be in a different journey when it comes to understanding the things of the Bible. Ultimately, the Lord is going to bring His people together, and He's going to build a spiritual house from all these different stones that come in different shapes and forms. And then He goes on here to explain to us what we, those spiritual stones 
what his church, that spiritual house that is going to build, that is going to be built by God, should what our attitude should be towards the things or the kings of this world. And notice what it says there in First Peter chapter two. It says, "Submit yourselves to every ordinance of men for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors." as unto them that are sent by Him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. And then in verse 17 it says, Honor all men. Now, did it say honor Christians only? No. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the King. Now, what if that's a pagan king, for example? Are we to honor pagan kings? Are we to honor kings who are not necessarily Christian, who do not have the same religious values that we hold on to? We are, according to what we see here presented in the Bible. We are to honor all men. It did not say honor only your Christian king, did it? Well, where do you think Peter gathered that from? How do you think Peter learned that we have to have this attitude as Christians towards the kings of this world? Well, he learned it from Christ himself. So turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 12. Jesus is having one of those encounters again with those who loved him most, the Pharisees. And again, the Pharisees are after the exact same thing that I have been for as long as Jesus was on earth. He was just a thorn. He came and he was just someone they wanted to get rid of completely. And they wanted to trick him here. Especially when it comes to what? What the relationship should be of them, of us Christians, when it, when it comes to the power of this, when it comes to the kings of this world. And what better opportunity for Christ to tell His people here that they should not obey pagan kings. Rome. I mean, think about prophecy. We have pagan Rome, and then we have papal Rome, which is just another version of pagan Rome. But they were under the rulership of a pagan power. And notice what Christ tells His people that should be our attitude towards Caesar. He says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And that's the first principle that we need to pick up this afternoon. We are to render to God that which belongs to God, but that does not require of us not to render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Notice what the Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 3, she has a commentary on this particular principle. And notice what it says there, because she elaborates and gives us in clarity what that truly means. Jesus, holding in His hand the Roman coin, upon which was stamped the name and image of Caesar, declared that as they were living under the protection of the Roman power, they should render to that power the supported claim, so as long as it did not conflict with their duty to God. And that is what we need to understand. We are to never sacrifice what our duty to God is in order to render to the government of wherever we are things that are not, that are going to interfere in our relationship with God. But if what the government requires of us does not in any way, shape, or form interfere with my relationship with God, we are to render to that government that which it has asked of us. And I must confess, this is something I, for example, needed to grow. I needed growth in this particular principle. I needed to understand this principle better. And I'll give you a quick illustration. For many years, I would look for a mechanic who was willing for me to pay cash so that I don't have to pay the 13% sales tax that is required of me for that service. Who desires that 13% sales tax from me? It's the government. So what should be my attitude when the 13% sales tax is asked of me? 
Should I go about and break those laws? Or what does the Bible tell us that we need to do? We need to render to Caesar, regardless of whether we like it, regardless of whether we even agree with it or not. You know, you can go on the internet and you could find a whole bunch of different talks on not paying income tax. And people believe that we should not pay our income tax. Well, is that what the Bible is telling us here to do? No, brothers and sisters. The Bible is clearly telling us that we are to render to Caesar that which Caesar requires of us. It did not qualify it if we agree or disagree with it. We are to render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar for as long as it did not conflict or it doesn't conflict with my duty to God. This is going to be a characteristic of God's last day people. And I'm not here to condemn anybody because as I mentioned, this is something I needed to understand much better. There's growth that needs to take place in all of us. And as we behold the Bible, as we behold what Jesus has presented to us, we need to make sure we step forward towards the light that He gives us. And I think this is an aspect that touched my life in particular. I wouldn't be able to speak about these things in front of you if it were three years ago. But as light comes, we need to embrace it. And that's the principle that I want us to pick up that we see here uh, presented in the Bible. I want us to now go back to Daniel chapter 6 and you're going to see why I have picked the title that I did. Why God calls us to be a Daniel in these last days. You know God is going to have a whole bunch of Daniel, thousands of them upon this earth. And in the 6th chapter in the book of Daniel, we see an example, we see a typology of what I believe we're going to see in these last days. We're going to have Different Daniels that are ready to follow the exact same biblical principles that Daniel here presents to us. So please come with me to Daniel chapter 6 and we're going to read there verses 1 through to 5. And here's what the Bible says. It pleased Darius. Again, was Darius a Christian? No. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three uh, presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him. How many of you want to have an excellent spirit in you? I certainly do. I want to be a Daniel. By the grace of Christ, I think all of us can. So this is what sets Daniel apart here. And notice how it continues. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. The highest position of all the princes that were chosen was given to Daniel. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault in him. Do you think these princes understood spiritual things? Of course, Daniel had a Christian character. Daniel was a representation of Jesus at that time. But these men were not after spiritual things. And when it came to Daniel, they were not trying to see if he did not understand certain doctrines incorrectly. They were after something different. And in verse 5 we read, Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. What do you think these princes were doing when they gathered together and, and, and tried to orchestrate a plan to take Daniel down from the position that he had, he had been given? They were trying to find something that he had not done, which was in accordance with the laws of the land. This is why they're going to go after him by enacting a law now. So they probably got together and they opened all of his 
income tax receipts. And when year after year after year to see if there was something perhaps that Daniel might have done wrong. Maybe there was something else that Daniel was not uh, in accordance when it comes to the laws of the land. These men, as I mentioned, did not understand spiritual things. And the only way for them to have him dethroned was by finding something that he had done wrong. But he was perfect. Why? Because he had perfectly understood what the Bible teaches us. We are to render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And that is what Daniel had done. And to God, the things that belong to God. And what is it that they do next? Well, the only way they could get Daniel to transgress a law or not to be a law-abiding citizen was to come up with a law that was going to come and interfere between him and his relationship with God. And this, brothers and sisters, is a typology, an example, an object lesson for God's people in these last days. The law that is going to come between us, or the law that is going to prevent me and you and all of God's faithful people in these last days from being law-abiding citizens, is the National Sunday Law. But until then, until that law comes into effect, all of us have to follow the example that is given here by Daniel. In order to ensure that when people of this world come and try to find something against us that is not of a biblical matter, they would not be able to find that in any of us. That is what the Bible gives us as far as an example when it comes to what the relationship of a Christian with the laws of the land should be. The only law that we are not to follow is a law that prevents me from following or giving God that which He requires of me. And the example, as I mentioned again, will be the National Sunday Law. That will be the law that we are going to have to break. But until then, we must be law-abiding citizens because that is the example that the Bible has given us. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter if I agree or disagree with the law that is found in my state. I am to obey it. I am to honor the King. When we go into the New Testament... We find this passage that we haven't quoted it yet today, but it basically gives us a, a breakdown of two very important uh, principles. And these are the words decently and the word order. We read in 1 Corinthians 14.40 that all things, not some things that we think should be done decently and in order. All things should be done decently and in order. Now, that word decently there, it's uh, the Greek word eusheimanos, and it's used only three times in the New Testament. It is translated as decently here in this particular verse, but at the other two locations, it is translated as honestly. We are to do things honestly. We are to do things legally, because when I am trying to trick the legal system of this world, I am not really doing things honestly. So God is asking us to do things honestly, on an individual level, and collectively as a church. And then He tells us that we need to do things in order. Now, when you think of the word order, what other word would you say comes immediately to your mind? The next word that comes to my mind is efficiency. Um, I'm a finance major, but for one reason or another... Uh, my career path went into a different, different direction, and I know why now. I see it as providential by the Lord, even though I had no clue. And um, I was able to be part of a, a company that, within a span of two to three years, became the largest online retailer to the United States. It's a Canadian company. 
It's a distribution center. So I don't know how many of you have been to a manufacturing facility or a distribution center, but basically it is a very busy and hectic place. You've got parts coming in, different packages coming in by the truckload. You have orders coming in that need to be packaged, organized, and sent out. And the one thing above all other things that allow this facility to grow exponentially within the span of those three years and become the largest online retailer to the United States was order. I have witnessed it with my own eyes. The more order there was among the workers, the more efficient we became. We were able to put the parts that were coming in a lot quicker and we were able to process all the orders much more efficiently, much faster, the more order and organization was put into place. So I know I have witnessed with my own eyes, even in the secular world, in the things of this world, how order and organization functions. And that extends beyond this. You could look into the universe. You could take a look at how angels operate as well. As we read earlier, order is the law of heaven. Review and Herald, August 4th, 1891. Notice what she says with respect to efficiency, because that's, that is what the Lord wants to see from us. How many of you want to go home? How many of you are sick and tired of this world? Disease? I don't want my child to grow here, grow up here. I really don't. I'd rather have her grow up in heaven. But you know what? Unless God's church works efficiently, that is going to take a really long time. So notice what we find in the testimony with respect to efficiency. To every member of the church is committed a work, not to some. To every member of the church is committed a work. And his sanctification will be seen in the efficiency a sanctified person, a person who has the character of Christ, will be working efficiently. The unselfishness, the zeal and purity and intelligence with which he does the work. All we have work to do, and all of us have to do that work efficiently. That's why the Lord is calling us to do things decently and in order. When order takes place, efficiency follows right after. Selected messages. She says, when they, come, when they came to the point in their study where they said, We can do nothing more. The Spirit of the Lord would come upon me. I would be taken off in vision. And a clear explanation of the passages we had been studying would be given me with instruction as to how we were to labor and teach effectively. It is not only doctrine. We're not only to teach effectively the things that the Lord has revealed to us. We are to also work as a church, as the body of Christ. We are to labor effectively. The more efficient we are, the sooner we'll go home. The Lord wants to see an efficiently well-organized body of believers pressing together. So the work that we has given us can be finished, and we can go home. Andy and Thomas already mentioned Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through the 4. But there's something else in these verses that I want us to um, understand. There was a problem in the church, so come with me please to Acts chapter 6. The apostles come in and they find a solution. They say, wherefore brethren, sorry, verse 2, then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So the apostles had a calling. You know, the Bible says that different people have different gifts. And different people, based on the gifts that the Lord has given them, also have different callings. And the calling of the apostles was what? To preach the word of God. That's what they were called to do. We, as a body, have different parts. Every part has a function to do. So the apostles here said, no, this is not our calling. Our calling is to go and preach the Word of God. 
pick from among you, another set of people who are going to come and take care of what? Of this business. That's the word here that the Bible uses in the King James Version is the word business. And I really like that word. And there's a reason why I like that word. Because here in this passage, we learn that there are two primary functions of the church, specifically when we look at this passage. Because this is when organization was instituted. Remember? Two functions. We have the spiritual work, which was the sharing and preaching of the gospel, which the apostles were called to do, the ministering of the word. That's why we use the word minister. Because that individual is to minister the word of God to the people. And that's what the apostles were busy with. But we also have certain other functions that are required for the church to complete. And I put the word administrative here, but the Bible called that business. The, the church of God has business functions, and we're given an example here, that need to be taken care of. That is what we find here in Acts chapter 6. And I want us to keep in mind these two functions of the church. Because they're very important when it comes to understanding how it is that we as a church can function in an organized and legal way. But before we go on, I just want us to do a little synopsis again of what we've learned so far. Because it's important to keep these things fresh in our mind because we're going to build upon them now as we move forward. We learn that God has called His people individually as well as collectively to be law-abiding citizens. He asked us to do things decently, honestly, legally. And He also asked us to do things in order, or in other words, to ensure that everything we do is as efficient as possible. And I really like that word bureaucracy because it fits really well. It's not about having organization. You can have a bureaucracy, but is a bureaucracy going to function efficiently? No, it isn't. That's not what God is calling us to do. He's calling for efficiency to be part of God's church so that the work can be finished and we can all go home. In the next section that we're going to examine now, we're going to go through history. We're going to examine and see what it is that we find with respect to the formation of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Our desire is to rebuild that which was lost. And not just rebuild for the sake of rebuilding, but rebuild because it was found on the platform of truth. Doctrinally, as well as organizationally. It followed the principles that the Bible has revealed to us in every respect. Notice what the Spirit of Prophecy tells us. As to why we are to remember our history. And this is the reason why we're going, we're going back to our history. Particularly the Seventh-day Adventist history. It says, as I see what God has wrought, I, I am filled with a, astonishment and with confidence in Christ as leader. Who was leading that people? It was Jesus Christ who was leading that people with respect to every aspect of the work. We have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and His teaching in our past history. So here we are today, desiring to reorganize. Here we are today, desiring to rebuild that which was lost. Where should we go for lessons and instructions? Right here. You know, there's a saying, if you forget history, what's... You are too. If we forget our history, brothers and sisters, we're going to make the exact same mistakes. This is why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that all these things, and he was speaking about the things that are given us as examples. What we learn about Daniel. What we learn about every other aspect of the work are given to us as a, what examples. Specifically for who? There was a specific group of people that these were given as an example. 
Those whom have found themselves at the end of this world's history. And how many of you think that we're living at the end of this world's history? So we are to heed all of these examples. What Daniel did, what Jesus did. These are lessons for us, and they've been given us so that we do not repeat the same mistakes. I mentioned earlier that there were two main functions in the church. But before we get there, I want to touch upon our history a little bit. And we can spend 15 minutes here alone on this one slide. And it's not about the numbers, but it's about what the numbers tell us here. From 1844 to 1863, which was 19 years, or about 20 years, the church was able to grow to a membership of 3,500 people. 20 years, and in that span of 20 years, the church reached a membership of 3,500 people. Now notice what happens in the next 20 years. What takes place in 1863? Organization takes place. The entire 1850s, people were going back and forth. Oh, no, we shouldn't be organized. Yes, James White and the rest of the pioneers were trying to get these people organized. It took them 10 years. The moment they were organized, notice I have 1888 there because we're all familiar with 1888. So about 25 years, even less, just slightly over of 20 years, which was the first period between 1844 and 1863, we grow to 28,000 members. That's nine times more between 1863 to 1888 as it was between 1844 to 1863. Do you see what organization does? Just like we read it this morning in the book of Acts. That's when growth comes in. And there's also another point that I want to point out here. What happened in 1888? The church refused the message that was given them which was going to prepare them or get them ready to finish the work. In a few years, they would have been done and gone home. And I said earlier that it's not about the numbers. Notice, 28,000 members were going to take the gospel to the four corners of the world. The Seventh-day Adventist Church today has 20 million members. And they're not even taking the gospel to the four corners of the world. So 28,000 people in 1888... If they had embraced the truth, we're going to finish the work. So is God interested in quantity or quality? Quality. It's not about numbers. It's about following the blueprint that God has given us. Notice another thing here. What was the growth in 1888 within the church? Do a quick comparison between the growth in 1888 when um, things went wrong because people did not accept the message that God had given them, and the growth that took place in, that, in membership that year. 1%. Nearly 90% reduction in church growth. When contentions come in, when we do not allow the Lord to lead us, when we reject His truth, what happens? Disarray, disorganization, contention. And that's exactly what took place in 1888. And what was the result? The work stopped from moving forward. There were no new members coming into the church. This is why the Lord wants us to be on the same page. In fact, on the same pages. This is where He wants us to be. And, and for, as, for as long as we are here, the work is going to continue to move forward. The moment we reject light, it stops. Growth ceases. And it was, the same thing was going to happen in Acts chapter 6. There was contention. The work was not going to move forward unless it was taken care of. But moving forward... I want to bring back this quote because it very well illustrates those two functions that I mentioned earlier. We have a spiritual work to do, but along that spiritual work, there are different administrative things or business things that need to be taken care of in the church. And it's important for us to understand that that is the case. 
No, the church is not a business. The church is a spiritual entity. But that spiritual entity, as we saw in Acts chapter 6, has different administrative or business functions that need to be taken care of. What are they? She tells us right here, to provide for the support of the ministry. And I want to stop quickly here for a second. When you look at uh, different people have different ideas, I'm talking about Christians, and different Christian groups, different denominations do things differently. And I'll give you, an ex- as an example, the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses have no paid ministers. That is just how they function. And because the Jehovah's Witnesses do not have paid ministers, there are certain business or administrative functions that they don't need to take care of. For example, the employer-employee relationship. If you want to have paid ministers, you have to have an employer-employee relationship. Wait a minute, but we're a church, we're not a business. No, we're not business. But you need to follow the laws of the land. And if you want to have paid ministers, you have to pay these ministers according to the laws of the land. It's a necessity. Should we or should we not have paid ministers? 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so had the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Who would achieve more? Who would be more efficient? A part-time minister or a full-time minister? So would 10 part-time ministers do as much work as 10 full-time ministers would do? I think it's an easy question to answer. So, would 10 part-time ministers finish the work quicker and take us home? Or would 10 full-time ministers finish the work quicker and take us home? You see, these are the reasons why God has ordained for these things. It was never His plan for the Israelites to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And we're told in the spirit of prophecy that it was never God's plan for His people, for His church to be here today. 1888, 28,000 people were going to finish the work. Now, do you think that 10 ministers working together would be more efficient than 10 ministers who do not work together and go about and do their own thing? Which one of the two sets of groups do you think is going to achieve more? Obviously, the unified people that are working together. It's a principle that the testimonies have clearly laid out for us. Signs of the Times, September 7, 1891. She says, In spite of all the good qualities a man may have, he cannot be a good soldier. We're soldiers. There's a spiritual warfare going on. If he acts independently of those connected with him, Well, let me give you an example. I don't want to work with you anymore, or with you anymore. I just want to do my own thing. You know what? I am not a good team player. I'm just going to go on my own, and I'm going to ask people to continue to support the work, because I just don't want to to work with you. I don't agree with your methods, and I think I'm going to achieve more on my own. Do you think that's going to take place? Not in the church of God, not according to what we see here presented to us. Occasionally, and in uncertain movements, however earnest and energetic, will in the end bring defeat. You can't labor on your own. That's why organization is necessary, because in an organized church, everybody comes together and works together under the same umbrella. And she gives a a beautiful example now. Take a strong team of horses. If instead of both pulling together, one should suddenly jerk forward and the other pull back, they would not move the load, notwithstanding their great strength. So the soldiers of Christ must work in concert, else there will be a mere conquerors of independent atoms. That's what organization is going to achieve. Unity in the faith. 
on all levels. On a local level, but also on a conference level. In union is strength. That is what we see here. And this is why the Lord has called us to labor, and this is why the Lord has called us to have support for the ministry. Because it, would, it is the efficient way of finishing the work in these last days, and God wants us to finish the work and go home. But let's move back to the other things that were listed that are needed in God's church. Organization is needed for carrying the work in new fields. For protecting both the churches and the ministry from unworthy members. For holding church property. So how do we hold church property as a church? Well, according to the laws that the land has instituted. For as long as that does not contradict our duty to God. Can we pay ministers under the table? Of course not. Would that be honest? Would that be legal? Is that what God is calling us to do? No. He's asking us to follow the laws of the land. We need organization for, pub for publication of the truth through the press and for many other objects. Brothers and sisters, as it was back then, it is today. Organization is indispensable. It is what's going to bring us together and it is what God has ordained in order for us to continue forward. So let's go back to the Adventist history. And what I want us to see, our focus now will transition into these administrative or business functions as the Bible called them in Acts chapter 6. And see what it is that the church utilized as far as a business entity in order for these functions to be dealt with. C.C. Chrysler, he worked with Ellen White for a long time. After her death, he went to China. Uh, you don't hear much about Chrysler when you talk about the pioneers, but he was besides Ellen White for many years, and he has written some really good books. And one of those books is, um, I'm quoting from here, it's called The uh, Organization, Its Character, Purpose, Place, and Development in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So notice what Chrysler here is um, quoting. And again, the question is, what entity did the church use in order to complete these administrative functions? Owning property? Employer-employee relationship? Needed for the publication of the work? He tells us, Early in 1861, the legislature of the state of Michigan had passed an enactment to provide for the incorporation of associations for the publication of periodicals. Corporations were coming up to the scene of this world in those years. And evidently, uh, early in 1861, the government now has allowed publishing houses to incorporate in order to receive the benefits that incorporating provides for them. Publications of periodicals, newspapers, books, tracts, documents, and other publications. This was signed by the government, by the governor, excuse me, this is, we're talking about uh, Michigan here, March 7, 1861. The way was now open for the formation of a legal company. You know, when you, le when you read about legal organization in uh, the writings of the pioneers in the 1850s, Pretty much the, every time the term legal, legal company, legal organization is used, is the term used for incorporating. Because that was the business entity that allowed them to fulfill these different functions in an efficient way. Here's our next quote, this time from Loughborough. And that is from the church, its organization, order, and discipline. Look at what Loughborough shares with us here. The Seventh-day Adventist Publishing Association. Who was taking care of the Seventh-day Adventist Publishing Association? It was James White. And for years, he was trying to get that to become part of the church. He no longer wanted it to be under his personal name. He wanted the, ch the church to take hold of this and, and use it to the benefit of publishing works of the Third Angel's Message, of the Three Angel's Messages was organized May 3rd, 1861. Organized. So when we talk about being organized, 
Was the publishing association there before 1861? Of course, James White was cutting grass so he can support that work himself. That's how this association started, his own money, his own efforts. And then in 1861, the step now comes in for them to do something. And notice what that is. This was the first of the various legal organizations formed by, by this people, Seventh-day Adventists. The formation of such corporations was point number three in what? Establishing in God's opening providence the order and system of managing the work of the third angel's message. You know why I'm quoting that to you? Because in the Christian world today, when you hear the word corporation, people jump out of their seats. And we're going to meet some of these objections in a little bit. But according to this statement, it was God's providence in order and system of managing the work of the third angel's message. Are we not to manage the work of the third angel's message today as well? What should be the criteria of how we decide whether incorporating is good or bad. What is the principle that we learn in the beginning of this presentation? For as long as it does not do what? Interfere with our duty to God. That is the principle that defines whether something is good or bad regardless of the opinion that we hold on to upon this subject. So what does this look like? Or what, it, what would it look like today? What would a legally organized church look like today? Well, it would look exactly as what it was back in the time of the pioneers. What were the two functions that we mentioned earlier that are needed within the church? What was it that we saw in Acts chapter 6? Spiritual work. We need to preach the gospel. And that spiritual work... Uh, involves who? Well, primarily the apostles were involved in that, but on a local level, that spiritual work is taken by the local elders. We talked about local leadership this morning. So as, as church members come together, they form churches. And as these churches come together, they form what we call a conference, which is the spiritual decision-making body of God's church. Who is involved in those decisions? The delegates that come from these churches who do what? share the thoughts found back home with their church and the ministers of the gospel. Exactly what we see in Acts chapter 15. And then, we now are left with certain other functions that need to be taken care of. And that is where incorporating comes in. The church incorporated more than one entity. Uh, but by the year 1903, is when the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventism was incorporated. And the church continues, continued to function with this dual system that we see here. Why do we need that corporate body to be in place? Well, because of the administrative functions that need to be taken care of. These administrative functions, employee-employer relationship, are we to have paid ministers? Well, according to the Bible, we are. So if we're to have paid ministers, how can we establish an employee-employer relationship? Well, according to what the laws of the land require of us to do. Are we to do things legally? Are we to render to Caesar and follow the guidance that Caesar has given us or not? Notice Uriah Smith reminiscing upon the things that were taking place in the 1850s. As I mentioned earlier, it took over 10 years for that group of people to be organized. He says, There were some who thought this would be all wrong and struck against it. And the cause was threatened with ruin over that question. But those who held the better view calmly urged their reasons till the point was gained and, the ch and church order was established among us. The same feeling came up to some extent over the adoption of a denominational name. We don't need to be a denomination. God's church is a spiritual body. God's church is not the various denominations. We know that quote by Ellen White. But we're not to read things out of context. Was Ellen White part of a denomination? So why are we taking quotes from Ellen White and using them against 
what Ellen White has been part of. How can we take a quote from Ellen White and say that the Church of God in these last days is not to be a denomination when the person who wrote that quote was part of a denomination? That makes no sense, does it? So there were people who were not fond of having a denominational name. And the incorporation of legal associations. There were people in those days who did not want the church to be incorporated and use that particular legal entity in order for these administrative tasks, the owning of property, and whatever else that is needed for the church to fulfill, had to be put into place. And there was at times great agitation over these questions. But at length these difficulties were all happily overcome. And the question for us today is, how long is it going to take us today to overcome these hurdles? Is it going to be 10 years? Or is it going to be much quicker? I think the latter. I think we've been given a lot of examples in there. So you might be thinking, well, I have certain things that I would like to share with you. Because I don't necessarily agree with what I have seen here, particularly on the incorporating part. That is usually the point of contention when it comes to legal organization. And I'm going to go over a few of the objections. Not all, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail, but just cover a few of those objections. And objection number one is that corporations are creatures of the state. Here's the definition of a corporation. It's from the American jurisprudence. It says, no corporation can exist without the consent or grant of the sovereign. Since the corporation is a creature of the state and derives its power by legislative grant. So the argument that is presented is corporations are creatures of the state and because they're creatures of the state we have now entered into this church and state relationship that the Bible talks about and we have fulfilled the prophetic um, example that has been given to us in Revelation chapter 17. Church and state. The moment we incorporate. And there was a man by the name of Nichols, Brother Nichols, had the exact same thoughts back then in the 1850s. And notice what he says. He's doing a commentary in 1852. He's doing a commentary in the Review and Herald upon Revelation chapter 17. And these are the thoughts that he shares in that commentary. He says, It is true that the woman represents one thing, the church power, and the beast another, the political power. But when the church and state are united or blended together by an act of incorporation by the state, do not these two powers become one? In other words, don't we have church and state? That was the question that that brother was trying to bring up among the believers to oppose the things that were being shared with respect to becoming a legal entity or organizing legally at that time. I'm going to try to share a short illustration that I hope is going to help us understand the difference uh, between fulfilling Revelation 17 and not being part of a church and state union. Now this is a picture of um, a Mennonite couple. This is in St. Jacob's, Ontario in particular. I have been to St. Jacob's, Ontario. That's why I'm using that particular example. My wife worked there for a little bit. So I used to see the, uh, the carriages on the road. Now, one of the reasons um, these brethren, that community in particular, the Amish community follows the same uh, reasoning from time to time. Why they, uh, the reason why they still use carriages rather than automobiles is so that they can keep their separation from the world. Now, I'm not going to comment on whether keeping ourselves from the world is good or bad just using that particular example here. But I've driven from the place where I live to here twice. It takes me 16 hours one way. Now if I were to use a horse and a buggy to come down here from Canada, it would take me a lot more than 16 hours. Wouldn't it? Now, how many of you drove here today? The majority of you. Well, who gave you the authority and power to drive? Who licensed your vehicle? Who gave you a driver's license? Who tells you how fast you can go on the highway? Have you not entered into a relationship with the state because you drove a car to meet us here for this meeting? You have. Is that right or wrong? Well, what is the principle? 
does me operating a vehicle, an automobile, prevent me from giving God or following my duties to God, rendering to God that which belongs to God? Is it fair for Caesar to give you a speeding ticket if you are going faster than the speed limit posted on the highway? Of course it is. Is it for you to evade that? No. Who sets the rules when it comes to driving? Caesar does, right? Operating a vehicle. Were there vehicles, were there automobiles in the time of the apostles? No. So if I were here to tell you that because there were no vehicles in the time of the apostles, we are not to drive vehicles today, or we are not to, uh, we're not to uh, use automobiles, which is a type of vehicle. We are only to go by foot. How long does it take us to finish the work in this world? A really long time, wouldn't it? Would that be an efficient way of functioning? Well, it is the exact same way in the business world. The government has given us different business vehicles which allow us to have a legal way of operating and fulfilling these administrative tasks that the church has. I'm going to repeat them again. Employer-employee relationship. Owning property for the publication of the work, for taking the gospel to the four corners of the world. And the legal entity that the business world gives us in order to fulfill these functions is that of incorporating. There's no other vehicle in today's world that allow us to work legally as well as efficiently as would incorporating. And this is the reason why the pioneers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church incorporated. Not just, they didn't have, it was several corporations that they incorporated. Because by incorporating, you're able to fulfill these administrative functions of the church. And that takes us to uh, our next objection, to which probably all of you have now, hopefully, been able to hear the answer. Once you incorporate, the church now becomes a business. The church has become a business. The church is no longer a church because it has incorporated. No, that's not the case. And we saw it in Acts chapter 6. We see it all throughout the Bible. The church is a spiritual entity, but the church uses these administrative vehicles in order to be able to legally fulfill the administrative requirements that it has. It has not become a business, but it has business functions. And these are not my words, that's what Acts chapter 6 said. And that's why I continually use the word business. That is the word that was used in Acts chapter 6. Next objection that comes up is 501c3 corporations are controlled by the state. And I'm not going to get into a lot of detail on this. But um, we don't believe that you have to be a 501c3 corporation. No. One of the reasons 501c3 corporations have limitations, or it's the primary reason, is because of the Johnson Amendment. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the Johnson Amendment, but it prevents 501c3 corporations, legal entities, from uh, partaking into political affairs prevents them from taking part in that. That is the limitation. That is the legal limitation that exists for 501c3 corporations. As I said, I'm not going to go any further. We don't have to because um, the United States of America has given a different vehicle for churches. And that is the 508 um, corporate status that you receive. Now another thing that we have to realize that the 501c3 is a designation that comes from the IRS. Incorporating is done at a state level, and the designation, the 501c3 designation, comes from the IRS. It is something that comes from, uh, that is done on a federal level. Yes, you do have to be incorporated in order to receive that designation, uh, but that is a point that people usually confuse. You know, they, for them, 501c3 and incorporating is synonymous. That's not the case. 501c3 is a designation that the IRS gives you. And that brings me to the next point. 
Is it a good or a bad thing to allow the government uh, to give us tax-deductible receipts? And I hear that as well. God's church should not take tax-deductible receipts. Well, is it violating biblical principle? Are we not to receive the benefits that are given to us? There's an example in the time of the pioneers. Um, one of the countries in Africa wanted to donate a land to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And A.T. Jones got up and said, No, we're not going to take that. We are not to enter into any relationship with the government. You know what Christ's response was? That's not true. Why? Because that's not the principle that the Bible presents. Are we not to drive cars because we enter into a relationship with the state? No, that's not, what the, that's not the principle that the Bible presents. For as long as that does not interfere between me and God, I am to follow the laws of the land. Did the Seventh Adventist Church accept that land in Africa? Of course it did. Why? Because it's going, it was going to help them to continue the work forward. You see what I mean? There were no cars in the Day of the Apostles. But the principle is there by which we can judge whether something is good or bad. There were no corporations. That's another argument that I hear. You don't see Paul or Peter or one of the apostles going into the local office, Roman office, and demanding to have uh, a legal entity created. Of course you don't see that. Corporations came on the scenes of this uh, world's history in the 1800s. How can Paul go and ask to be incorporated in the time of the apostles when that was not that vehicle, that business vehicle, was not present there. That's why you also don't see Paul going and asking the Roman bishop to give him a driver's license. Because there were no cars back then. We are to follow principle. The principles that the Bible has presented to us. Corporations today are different than those in the time of the pioneers. Here's the definition of a corporation. Again. It tells us that corporation, the corporation is a creature of the state. It, it is presumed to be incorporated for the benefit of the public. It receives certain special privileges and franchises and holds them subject to the laws of the state. Of course it's a creature of the state. Who dictates the laws? The state. So could it be a creature of anybody else? No, it cannot be because it is the state that regulates the laws. That's why corporations are creature of the state. They cannot be my creature or my creation. I'm not the one who has the authority. I'm not Caesar. That's why corporations are creatures of the state. Because they have to follow the laws that the state has put into place. And for as long as these laws do not contradict or do not come between us and God, we are also to follow them. And to use the most efficient vehicle that is going to allow us to fulfill the administrative functions of the church. Notice the year. 1906. So corporations back then in the early 1900s are exactly as to what they are today. This is the definition of corporation. It hasn't changed yet. So no, there's no difference per se between what the pioneers did and what we're doing today. And as I mentioned to you in the beginning of this presentation, the law that is going to come and prevent us from being law-abiding citizens is not incorporation. The law based on the typology in the Bible, in the story of Daniel, is the National Sunday Law. Why? Because that is the law that the local states are going to enact in order to get us just like they wanted to get Daniel. And it's just a matter of whether you and I are going to follow God or men at that point. And we know what happened to Daniel. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, I want to reiterate what we have seen presented in the Bible. Because the Bible should always be our guide with respect to every single decision that we make. I have but only one question left to ask you. 
And that is, do you want to be a Daniel? Do you want to follow the laws of this land for as long as they do not contradict your duty to God? Do you want to see an efficiently working church? Do you want to see a church where the ministers are able to do the work efficiently in unity? Do you want to see a church that is going to fulfill all these different administrative functions that are required for us today? To own property? To reimburse the work of ministry? If it is so, I would kindly ask you to kneel with me so we can petition the Lord to give us strength to push forward and achieve these things so we can finish the work and go home as soon as possible. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for everything that you have given us. We're so thankful for all these examples that are found in your word. Lord, I pray and ask that as we study these things, as we meditate upon them, you will continue to shed more light and more light upon these subjects. Father, we desire to have the work done. We desire for your church to be rebuilt, to be reestablished for that which was lost, and to function according to the blueprint that you have given us in the Bible, the same blueprint that was replicated by the pioneers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And by God's grace, we ask that we can be the people who are going to replicate that same blueprint in order for the work to continue moving forward efficiently and successfully. Father, I pray that you enlighten all of our minds and that you help us to understand all of these different points and to grow. We all have different thoughts, ideas, and each and every one of us is at a different journey in our life. I pray that we can continue to move forward. I pray that things that aren't clear, things that might seem contradictory to us, will be revealed in such a way that they can reflect the Bible and the Bible only. We surrender ourselves into Thy hands, and we pray and ask all of this in the name of Your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Standing on the Platform of Truth Pioneer